welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. J.F. Martel. A quick note before we start, or maybe a question. Who are you? What are you? Do you have a soul? Is there something about you that can't be reduced to something else, something that isn't you? Are you a unique creation, self-existing, or just an aggregate of disparate experiences, ideas, and beliefs that the historical circumstances of your birth have cobbled together to manufacture the illusion of you? These are questions that Phil Ford and I explore in this episode of Weird Studies, where we discuss Lisa Reddick's essay, When Nothing is Cool, published a few years ago in The Point magazine. In this piece, Reddick, an English lit professor at the University of Chicago, describes a certain mood, a certain ambiance or style that pervades contemporary literary studies departments. And while neither Phil nor I work in English departments, we both knew exactly what she was talking about. Across the academic world, as Phil can attest, or indeed in other sectors like the media industry that I work in, something like this mood prevails. Well, what is it? Well, it's not a particularly good mood. It's a kind of listlessness, almost a kind of nihilism. It's a feeling that nothing really is anything deep down, that the essences that perhaps once gave substance to the things in our world have somehow departed leaving us with the impression that nothing has an interior, that everything is hollow or flat or inessential. Even me, even you. We hope you enjoy the show. teaching is sort of relevant, I feel like it's relevant to what we're talking about today because uh, I'm teaching the undergraduate music history, well, one half of the sequence. So the undergrads at our institution take two semesters of uh, music history and the second half of which is from 1800 to the present day and I almost always teach that these days. And I actually like teaching the undergrads a lot, even though this is like a huge class with like 150 kids in it. But I still like doing it because the undergraduates haven't, I mean, some of them are acting prematurely jaded or <laughs> there's like always yeah. going to be some people who are who are going to have this sort of like, oh, so bullshit sort of attitude. Yeah. But for the most part, I don't find that undergrads are like that. If they're interested in the class at all, I mean, you can you can find things that they've never heard before and that they can be really excited about. And it's really fun to introduce somebody to something like, you know, the opening of Wagner's Das Rheingold, which is a kind of unforgettable musical moment. Um, you can only hear it for the first time once, and I like being there when people hear that for the first right. time. But, you know, it's also like this last week. Okay, so we started 1800, so I start with Beethoven. You know, talking about Beethoven, among musicologists and the 
the the professional end, the uh, the things that we talk about amongst ourselves, we musicologists. You know, we're very apt to talk about uh, the idea of Beethoven's genius kind of in scare quotes, right? His so-called genius, or thinking of genius, for example, as something that is a construct of especially nationalist agendas in the 19th century, German nationalist agendas. So right. the reason that we talk about Beethoven as this kind of Promethean genius is because it served the interests of the powerful to create this narrative around Beethoven, right? Um, yeah. And it's almost, uh, it's almost unargued among professional musicologists that of course what we're talking about here are constructions of things rather than the things themselves. When I'm teaching 402, which is the name of the class, the undergraduate music history class that I'm teaching, I like to think about, for example, the idea of a Beethoven as a Promethean creator, where I'm actually really trying to think about, like, what does the myth of Prometheus say? And how does Beethoven seem to be like an avatar of that myth? How does he seem to make that myth real or make it uh, present? Mm -hmm. How does he embody that? All this cultural construction stuff is fine as far as it goes. But at the end of the day, I think that there are some things like, you know, Beethoven isn't a quote-unquote genius. I think he's a genius, pure and simple. Right. Um, or if you don't, aren't comfortable with the word genius, which, you know, maybe I'm not. I kind of I prefer the idea that people have a genius rather than that people are a genius. Yeah. What's uh who who was it the the writer who wrote um Eat Pray Love Oh I know who you're talking about but I can't yeah. remember her name Yeah have you seen that TED talk she did where she talks about that of appealing to genius instead of claiming to be a genius that sort of thing I think somebody once yeah. told me about that yeah. but I haven't seen it no She kind of you know breaks it down uh, that that idea that that genius is a an inhabiting spirit a kind of something you appeal to or something you acquire something you make friends with rather than something you naturally genetically possess, you know, that you're born yeah. with. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting talk. We're, we're kind of diving right into it here because this, this idea that genius itself or the idea of genius as a, as a, as a historical construct that emerged for political reasons is uh, kind of like, kind of like, like hitting the, 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 the heart of what we're going to be discussing today doesn't it? It's like, sure. and, and it seems to me like the approach you're taking in your class is a, a much more essentialist approach, which is at least entertaining the possibility that, or at least inhabiting the spirit of the times you're studying to the extent that you're willing to entertain the idea that genius might be something that uh, this particular individual, you know, actually possessed or actually, and, and how does his life, how does his trajectory, how does his how does his quest kind of mirror or mimic the, the 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 myth of Prometheus, which was used to kind of describe um, him as a as a romantic artist? It, so, do you see it more as a kind of like uh, a playful entertainment of a possibility to get into the spirit of the times, or do you consider are you actually an essentialist who believes in the reality of genius as as the nineteenth century Germans might have understood it? I'm not sure. I don't know if I know the answer to that. Um, to say, to call yourself an essentialist in the contemporary humanities academy, you might as well just call yourself a fascist. Like essentialism is one of those grave sins that you must never cop to. Yeah. Other people can be essentialists. You 
however, can only be the brave seeker after truth who is unmasking all essentialisms. To be an essentialist, I think, in the common or Kant understanding is simply to assume that people of one race or another have innate qualities of that race, so therefore to be an essentialist is to be a racist, or to believe that women and men have essential qualities that are theirs by virtue of their gender. That's to be a gender essentialist, which is also to be a very wicked person. And yet the difficulty is that essences are sort of stubborn. It's kind of hard to go through life assuming scare quotes around everything. Right. Uh, and yet that's kind of what we end up doing in the academic humanities with somebody, for example, like Beethoven. Okay, is Beethoven a genius or does he have a genius in the sense of some kind of tutelary or occupying spirit? Or is he slash does he have a quote-unquote genius? Are we going to put scare quotes around that? And the scare quotes, that's like this little ironizing move, right? You take an idea that has a kind of um, taken-for-granted uh, applicability. Yeah. You know, if there's an assum uh, the assumption of something there, there, some essence. If you say so-and-so is a genius, then you are assuming that there is a quality of genius that some people can have and that that person actually has it. But when you say that someone is a quote-unquote genius, when you put the, those invisible scare quotes around it, then you are performing this sort of historicist move where you're like, well, I'm on the fence as to whether he really is or is not a genius. Kind of not my job to say. All I'm going to say is that people have called him a genius, and they've called him a genius in the following historical contexts. And these are the historical meanings that have attached themselves to the word genius. And so you discuss everything, as it were, from the outside, and you remain neutral on the question of essences, whether somebody actually is a genius or whether somebody really can possess genius. So that kind of anti-essentialism splashes over into practically everything, right? You can think of, for example, love, just something as basic as uh, the love of a parent for his or her children. You know, if you wanted to, you could say that it's not love, but it's quote-unquote love. If, for example, I was a, an orthodox neo-Darwinian, I may say, well, you know, what we call love or what we are pleased to think of as love is a set of conditioned responses or it's a set of hardwired responses that are themselves merely the working parts of uh, overall strategy of species self-perpetuation, right? Right, right. And, 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 and in that case, you can say, oh yeah, well, there is something that we experience as love, but it's not, but love doesn't really exist. There's no essence to love. You know, the love I feel for my children, uh, that's just wiring, you know, that's just programming. That's not who you really are. And so this kind of rage against essences can infect absolutely every aspect of our lives. And I shouldn't beat up on just the academic humanities because as my last example might indicate, it's possible for scientific reduction to basically do the same thing, to boil away the idea of there being an interior to any person or any phenomenon. 
And instead, you just sort of say, well, you know, there are these appearances or there are these ways that the phenomenon seems to interact with other phenomena. Uh, but as for what it really is in itself, hey, that's not my job to say. And that goes beyond just the current mood of the academic humanities. That is, to me, a very profound aspect of the cognitive style of modernity. I think it was Paul uh, Ricard, a French philosopher who named the three masters of suspicion of 19th century thought, Marx, uh, Nietzsche, and Freud. What, what each of these thinkers did, each, you know, each one in his own field, so Marx in kind of, uh, I guess you would say, kind of a historical context, and Nietzsche in philosophy, and perhaps even art more than philosophy, and then Freud in, in science, You could add Darwin to this, of course. Um, Darwin, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche, they all do something very similar. Basically, they they suspect the given and try to find the forces that produce the given. And they make it a point to characterize the forces that produce the given as being opposed in spirit to the given. You know what I mean? Like, the forces that make something are actually often quite literally in Freud, the opposite of what they produce. So, uh, mm. and, and Nietzsche has this too, right? Like all is will to power. And, and Marx, of course, in his own way. And there's this movement in 19th century thought to break through the appearances that were taken for granted by the centuries that preceded it. And then to um, to find the, the actual causal mechanism that produces the lie that is our existence. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that that has obviously has had tremendous influence like these four thinkers basically shaped 20th century thought and their influence persists today and in, in that essay that we're going to be discussing you know when nothing is cool i i find that and i've recently found myself really kind of like having second thoughts about a lot of the basic assumptions of this type of thinking I find myself, you know, actually, it's funny because um, essentialism, you, it is a really, really, really bad word. You don't want that word applied to you in general, and uh, as I've learned. <laughs> um, but uh, in uh, one of the Spanish uh, reviews of my book, of the Spanish translation of my book, uh, I was described as being an essentialist of art. And uh, at first I was like, yeah, that's, really? that's exactly it. Yeah. And, but then when I thought about it, like, oh, that's, I don't, I don't think that was meant. It's hard to, cause I've been reading these reviews through uh, using Google translate. So <laughs> it's hard for me to so know. So we can't be a hundred percent sure. <laughs> well, I'm sure that some word translated to essentialism and it, since it's a Latin word, I'm pretty sure that it was just essentialismo or whatever the Spanish word is for it. <laughs> and um, maybe the word has a different connotation in Spanish, but it gave me pause. I was like, it's funny because on the one hand, I find myself really seduced by the masters of suspicion and by their way of thinking. And obviously I've been really, really shaped by Nietzsche, especially and Marx a little bit, Freud certainly. At the same time as I'm kind of like thinking that the pendulum is, is, is heading the other way now. We're moving towards something that's very different from the historicism we've been indoctrinated into. Um, it's hard for for anyone, I think, to know what that thing is, but we're moving towards something else. And uh, I think the essay we're going to be discussing kind of um, is, is putting its finger on that, in a sense.
essay is Lisa Ruddock's When Nothing is Cool. And this originally appeared in an anthology called The Future of, what is it? The Future of Scholarly Writing? The Future of Academic Writing? What is it's it? The called. Future of Scholarly Writing? The, yeah, The Future of Scholarly Writing. Right. Uh, catchy, and, catchy. Yeah. Yeah, really memorable. That's a very memorable <laughs> title. Um, so this is a piece that appears at, at somewhat greater length in that collection, but you can find it online. We'll include a URL in the show notes. But the point that Lisa Ruddick, the author of this piece, is making, she's an English scholar. She talks about this very much as a practitioner of contemporary literary studies. And it's a critique. It's a challenge. Because, you know, what she's saying, in effect, is the actually what we've already talked about a little bit, which is this allergy to the very notion of essences and thereby also to the idea of things having a kind of interior consistency, like an integrity. Right. Uh, the idea, for example, that the sense that you have of who you are, your sense of being a person, the decisions that you make, the motivations you have for doing things, the things that you dislike or that you work against or that you oppose that all of those things are they're from somewhere else yeah it's as if you are a a loosely sorted heap of stuff just kind of all the stuff that you've encountered various scripts pertaining to gender and sexuality pertaining to race ethnicity nationality occupation uh, religion, so on and so forth. All of these are notions that you have gotten from somewhere, and they've just sort of accumulated in your head, and out of this odd assortment of odds and ends, bits and pieces, bits of ideological conditioning that you pick up from your environment, out of this sort of hodgepodge of disparate elements, you craft a fiction that you call me, myself, like who I am. That's the idea, anyway, the idea that we don't really have an interior life. We don't have a kind of interior at integrity. That's basically the idea that Ruddick is taking aim at, and it's an idea that she maintains is it's widely held, it's widely socialized among young academics who are coming into the field. It's one of those things that goes without saying. Yeah. It's one of those easy items of agreement. And it's an idea that, while not necessarily explicitly argued in every piece of scholarship, it is always there at least implicitly. And Ruddick comes up with a number of examples of published scholarly work by well-known people who are assuming a kind of profoundly anti-humanistic, I guess you might say post-humanist point of view, mm -hmm. where the, all the various ideas of humanism are seen as a kind of a hollow and shabby lie, and scholarship is seen as, above all, engaged in the project of unmasking those fictions, those myths. Right. What's interesting about the article is that she is, she's not only is she questioning these assumptions that I agree are, are basically like 
really widely disseminated and and taken for granted when you hit grad school. I think that's just you know it'd be it'd be strange to argue that there is some kind of essential soul or self to the human being. You know, like the the that these ideas have an effect and that they've created an atmosphere of ruthlessness and meanness or deadness in the humanities that she sees reflected in the work that's being produced. And that she also talks about a number of students she's interviewed who expressed feeling listless, they're afraid. A lot of them, by the time they're finished grad school, aren't even able to enjoy a poem anymore. They're so suspicious of their own feelings because they've been basically indoctrinated into a, a system that devalues the individual in an, in an absolute sense. Like that, that basically all yeah. that's left, all that, that remains are historical forces. And to fall for them, to fall for these forces, to believe that they actually mean something, and to believe that a particular, like a novel in an English lit department means something or has something to reveal beyond uh, revealing its own uh, historical Genesis, its, its own embeddedness like, you know, or it's, whatever. It's, its own, yeah, is to kind of be a sucker in a way. Um, so it creates yeah. this this cool atmosphere that this detached spirit in which um, academics are supposed to produce their work, and and as a result, the 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 work that's produced tends to um, propagate this type of suspicious nihilism, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She calls it academic cool, and it's an interesting way of thinking about it. The title of the piece is When Nothing is Cool. And I guess the title comes from a line she has somewhere in this essay where she says that nothing in the academic humanities and in literary studies in particular, nothing right now is as cool as cultural theory was in the 80s, I guess to some extent in the 90s, in the, in the good old days of cultural theory. And yet here we are at a point where we're still, I don't know, huffing the fumes of that high critical moment. The feeling is that the heroic moment of that project has passed. But at the same time, it's not as if there are all that many people who are really questioning the fundamental assumptions of that critical theory. And one of the things that Ruddick says is that basically we're at a point where theory has sort of decomposed into a set of attitudes. Yeah. Uh, she, almost she... just sort of like... It's uh, it's more style than anything. Yeah. She so, says she says what what began as theory persists as style is the way she puts it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, she yeah the whole I even wrote that down. <laughs> I was taking notes <laughs> uh, and it said in the name of critique anything except critique can be invaded or denatured. This is the game of academic cool that flourished in the era of high theory. Yet what began as theory persists as style. Actually, I want to I want to I want to read. A paragraph from this piece that to me kind of nails the essence of the thing. Uh, Ruddock writes, repeatedly we will find scholars using theory, or simply attitude, to burn through whatever is small, tender, and worthy of protection and cultivation. Academic cool is a cast of mind that disdains interpersonal kindness, I-thou connection, and the line separating the self from the outer world and the engulfing collective. Ultimately, I suggest that within English as a human system, this gestalt works to create a core of compliant professionals. Novices subliminally absorb the message that they have no boundaries against the profession itself. The theories they master in graduate school are such as to make their own core selves 
or what within the lexicon of D.W. Winnicott would be called their true selves, look suspect and easy to puncture analytically. What, by contrast, is untouchable and supports a new and enhanced professional self is what Slavov Zizek, without apparent irony, has called the inherent correctness of theory itself. Yeah. So what, what is your, uh, you, you work in a university. Have you uh, witnessed, experienced this phenomenon? Is it something you've seen or noticed? Yeah. Well, musicology is sort of odd because it's always sort of, I mean, musicologists always complain about this, but maybe there's also a good side to this. It's also, a li- it's always a little bit out of the swim. A li- you know, it's seldom in the mainstream of the academic humanities. And the critical theory, sort of cultural theory stuff really only started to come into musicology in the early mid-90s. The critical studies idiom has for a very long time just been one of several different things you can do in musicology and by no means obligatory. But I would say in the last decade or so, it's gone from being just sort of like this separate scholarly thing, like for some people that's their thing and for others it's not. It's gone from that to being in musicology pretty much what it is everywhere in the humanities these days, and that is a lingua franca. Everybody in musicology, everybody in literary studies, everybody in art history and so on, like everybody in every field, we all have our own literatures and our own special technical skills that we have to develop and that tend not to be shared by people outside of our fields and those tend to keep us separated. But all of us know what Foucault had to say about Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, for example. Um, Categories of a Foucauldian or Derridean, or Deluso, Guattarian, or whatever, like, those can function as a kind of lingua franca. Like, I can talk about the Lacanian real to a bunch of literary scholars, and we can understand what we're talking about, even if the literatures that we're coming from are quite different. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has exerted a kind of hydraulic, sort of steady hydraulic force on all disciplines, in as much as we want to talk to one another and we're all applying for the same grants and we're all parts of the same university, like cultural theory has created uh, not just methodologies, but a whole environment of opinion, uh, a whole set of cultural norms, a whole set of things that kind of go without saying that allows us to talk to one another, but and, and it to some extent de-silos or de-parochializes these various disciplines in academia, but at the cost of a certain kind of uniformity. And I think, yeah, in answer to your question, I feel that I feel that constantly. There's this sense that, for example, to argue any position that assumes interiority, that in- in- assumes uh, an integral self, that assumes, shall we say, a soul, that isn't merely a product of all the various random social forces that uh, you encounter, but it is a kind of an essence to who you are. Even to articulate any idea that assumes that, not even to argue that point, just to assume it, like in my M402 class, where I will say, you know, Beethoven is the, the image of a Promethean creator, but I'll say it in such a way that is to suggest like he's actually doing something Promethean, that there's some essence of Prometheanness there. 
that feels refreshing to me because I get to say that to a room full of undergraduates because they're not, you know, they're not 100 totally jaded. And right. I also feel like I want to celebrate something that I think is beautiful and valid and whose beauty and validity goes beyond just uh, articulating or rehearsing certain cultural narratives. I want to do that with them. And I feel like in an undergraduate classroom, you can kind of get away with it more often. It's almost like undergrad teaching becomes like a, a holiday. It's where you get to nerd out. It's where you get to show the side of yourself that is still kind of enthusiastic and as yet unsocialized by academic professionalism. So what you're saying is that when you're teaching an undergraduate class, you can, um, you can let your enthusiasm shine. But when you're among graduate students, you feel that you're speaking a different language and, and that language doesn't allow you to, to believe what your undergraduate self can still believe in. Is that what you're saying? That, that, that there's a, a different code? I think a lot of people would say that, or at least I have seen that idea expressed. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, I just try to teach all of my classes in the same way. Like it helps that I've got tenure. Right. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I still, I mean, anybody who says, oh, I don't give a fuck about what anybody thinks is probably full of shit. So, I mean, I do care about some people's opinions, but I care a lot less about offending against these sort of abstract ideas that we're all supposed to agree with and believe in. So, you know, in teaching graduate students, um, I'm not necessarily going to avert to the habitual position of academic cool. That being said, you also want to teach people how to be skeptical. Yeah. Like, you know, historicism is a really useful mental technique, like maybe one of the very most important things, because you want people to disembed a little bit from their own personal feelings, from their feelings of love or dis dislike, and to approach things from a somewhat depersonalized point of view. I mean, when I was in graduate school, I remember it's kind of funny because now I'm like a passionate foam at the mouth Wagnerian, but when I was started graduate school in musicology, I remember I didn't like Wagner, and I remember telling Jim Hepikoski, who is a, a well-known music scholar who was my advisor at the time, I remember telling him that I didn't like Wagner, and I remember him saying in response, well, Nobody really cares whether you like Wagner or not. It's your job to know Wagner, like to know this music and to know what people have said about it. Right. And that was a really useful thing for me to hear because it's just sort of like, yeah, as a scholar, you're a professional. You're developing a range of responses to things that otherwise maybe you would never listen to or read or, or care about. But, you know, if you can't bring it, find it in yourself to love something you can at least find it in yourself to understand it and this kind of relatively depersonalized ethos is really important people need to learn how to do that the this kind of critical skill of disembedding of disembedding your own perspective from the taken for granted from what everybody assumes like that's a really important skill like if you don't have that i it's hard for me to see exactly what you like where do you go I mean, other than just affirming shit that other people have said. So this stuff is really important. And, I, and you know, I've, I have 
I have paid my dues in reading critical theory, and I think there's a lot of critical theory that's like really, really valuable. For example, to listen Guattari, A Thousand Plateaus. I think that book is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, we should do a piece. We should do like a show on that at some point. Such an interesting, yeah. weird it, book. It, well, there's a lot of good stuff in that book. A lot of awesome parts. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> that's but, basically what it is. It's just awesome parts. Yeah, exactly. The one uh, awesome part after another. Yeah. But the, I'm not, you know, with this, like this willful attempt to avoid any, anything totalizing or right. anything overarching. It's just a pluralism that remains a pluralism. And yet, and yet, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, or their collaborations have produced a, um, a school of thinking in, uh, at least in North American academia that is, as dogmatic as anything you could imagine. Yes. Which, in that, that, you know, that part where uh, Ruddick says, uh, what begins as theory persists as style? You could also reverse yeah. it, that what begins as style persists as theory. So you'll have a thinker. Yeah, like, that's really true. You'll, you'll have a thinker like Deleuze who, for reasons of his own, produces a certain type of work. And then that work is, is um, sent out into the world, and then it becomes, uh, it becomes theory. It dies. It it becomes something. It becomes a kind of uh, a mold or a a, a a theoretical apparatus that other people apply to everything that comes their way. Well, it's a problem. Uh, yeah. It is among other things a problem of pedagogy because every disembedding, like when I say disembedding, like disembedding of your perception from what is taken for granted, right. what is assumed, what's commonplace, um, so-called common sense. Every disembedding leads to a different embedding. Yeah. You know, that that state of free-floating, endlessly drifting, non-attachment to any fixed set of ideas, which is what I take, you know, Thousand Plateaus to be kind of a performance of that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really hard to sustain that. Maybe impossible. I, I believe that we all do have... I guess, points where we have to touch down, where we can't keep floating. We have to be anchored in something. The problem with the cultural theoretical enterprise is, as Ruddick points out, it trains you to be suspicious of everything except theory. So your your job becomes to rigorously disembed yourself from every commonplace and shared perception but since it's impossible to do that, or at least very, very difficult, when you touch back down, what you touch back down on is theory. So theory ends up being, you know, the one thing that you can never question uh, is the, 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 the culture theoretical project. And that's, of course, what Ruddick is doing, because she's saying, well, you know, cultural theory, though, does seem to carry with it this interpretive style. And it's a style that is sneeringly contemptuous or harshly dismissive of anything we might call interiority. Right. Um, And it seems to me, as I said before, it's like a pedagogical thing. You know, you're teaching students to disembed, but my feeling, my personal feeling is that they have to re-embed in something. There has to become something that they believe in, that they hold to be true, some anchor, some ground under their feet. And if you say... Endlessly, nothing is true, everything is permitted, nothing is true, everything is permitted, nothing is true, nothing is true, nothing is true. What people will do is they will retreat into whatever theory tells them that nothing is true, everything is permitted, and that will become their 
the ground beneath their feet. That will become their dogma. And this, I think, is what you're talking about. And so, like, for me, as a pedagogue, you want to kind of lead people to the things that are meaningful, like, to them, and not just the things that it's okay to find meaningful. Like, the, the discipline will tell you it's okay to believe in theory. It's not okay to believe in anything else. I think it's important for people to find stuff to believe in, stuff to invest in, I think it's important for that to balance the countervailing project of disembedding. You have, to, as a teacher, you want to guide people both through disembedding and then re-embedding, but you want to, to me, you want to help the student find their own path to that balance. Does that make any sense? I'm speaking very It does, but I think it's a dangerous move in academia. I, I, I don't know. I'm not in that world, but it seems to me that let's say that a student has religious convictions, religious beliefs. Does it mean to basically um, to, to, to write from that place of believing, let's say, that, that Christ died for our sins and then to write from that belief? Well, I'm not talking so much about propositions, like things that you believe that you then assert as propositions. Yeah. Okay. I'm not not talking about that so much. Okay. Um, but rather, and to, let's take it back to the main thing that Ruddick is talking about, which is the academic humanist sort of allergy to any notion of there being an essential self. Yeah. Right, an inner essence. You know, the examples that Ruddick is is drawing from published scholarship of people who are evincing that attitude. They're not, for the most part, articles that are arguing there is no such thing as interiority or all notions of interiority are bourgeois and serve various hegemonic authorities. There are people who are making specific arguments about, say, the movie Silence of the Lambs uh, or about Oscar Wilde or whatever. But the way they're making the argument is assuming that the inner self, the inner being, uh, is a fiction and not worthy of protection. So for example, Ruddick gives us an example, somebody's published scholarship, I think it's Judith Halberstam. It is, uh, yeah. A piece on Jonathan Demme's film, uh, Silence of the Lambs. And she's writing about Buffalo Bill, the serial killer in Silence of the Lambs who skins the bodies of the young women that he kills. And let me see if I can find the... Relevant. I've got it right here. Halberstam suggests that Bill, Buffalo Bill, the serial killer in Silence of the Lambs, is as much a hero as a villain, for he, quote, challenges the misogynistic constructions of the humanness, the naturalness, the interiority of gender. By removing and wearing women's skin, Bill refutes the idea that maleness and femaleness are carried within us. Quote, gender, Halberstam explains, is always post-human, always a sewing job which stitches identity into a body bag. And later on, she quotes Halberstam as saying that um, in a positive way that, that uh, Buffalo Bill enacts a carnage of identity. There's a celebratory tone to the, to the article, according to um, Ruddick, that uh, makes uh, this particular piece by Halberstam uh, troubling. Yeah. Because this, this destruction of gender, this destruction of the idea of gender and the idea that, that there's anything, that anything about a human being goes, goes deeper than just the skin. Uh, that idea is, is, is put forward in the article as um, an innately positive move. Like this is something we need to embrace uh, because yeah. all notions of identity are inherently oppressive. 
Yeah. And the argument that all notions of identity are inherently impressive is seldom made because you don't have to make it. There's gen now generations of scholars who have explicitly made those arguments. And, you know, you don't have to keep rehearsing those arguments. You can just kind of initial them. You can have a, a footnote where you explain it. And then once an idiom is entrenched deeply enough, you don't even need the footnote anymore. It just becomes part of the collective it becomes common sense yeah. like the very thing we started out trying to get our students to get away from too much of an unreflective reliance on common sense you know common sense goes out the window and then it sneaks in through the back door and so this is what i'm saying when like people don't necessarily make an argument like i these things i believe in fact i mean god who does that maybe you know maybe you'll do it in the very last page of your book or whatever but for the most part ringing manifestos of personal belief are a little bit out of place in professional work but the point is that you got to believe something <laughs> you got to have some kind of ground beneath your feet and clearly this kind of post-humanist assumption that all forms of interiority are inherently fictive, for one thing, and inherently oppressive, for another, that has become one of those things it goes without saying. And so as a pedagogical matter, you know, I want my student. I don't want to tell my students what they should or shouldn't believe. That's the absolute last thing that I would want. But I would want them to have some ability to perceive for example, that a lot of people are taking that idea on board and uncritically. I would like people to reflect critically on things that other people are holding uncritically. And in so doing, I would like them to figure out what beliefs guide their scholarship. So to get back to your example, say a somebody who's a Christian who believes in the divinity of Jesus Christ, who believes that Christ died for our sins. You know, somebody like that, I would, oh, I would really want people not to turn published scholarship into a blunt, crude expression of those ideas. But those ideas can, in a lot of subtle ways, inform the choices you make in your scholarship. There's yeah. a guy in musicology, a really brilliant fellow whose name I'm now completely forgetting. Now, I want to call him uh, by a name I know is wrong. This is really, <laughs> this is so fucking annoying when this happens. Anyway, I know scholars who, in fact, do have a religious inner life that they are not shy about proclaiming. But in their scholarship, in very high-end scholarship, it doesn't come out in the form of like articulation of a position of belief, but rather it guides the kinds of things that they're interested in thinking about. Ideas of uh, redemption and grace, for example. visiting some of Arnold Toynbee's writings recently. And one of the things I like about, about Toynbee is his 
passionate, idiosyncratic, fuck you all uh, approach to writing history. It's mm-hmm. just like nobody does this anymore, you know? And it came mm-hmm. from a, a very deep set of beliefs about what the universe is and what it means and how it works, you know? Like, and, and not, these aren't like, dogmatic kind of blind uh, beliefs these are they're just um, and this is something that we can get to that because religiosity or even a religious faith it doesn't need to be the end of your thinking life it could be the beginning or a door into thinking and that's what precisely you're, when you're describing this 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 uh, this colleague you know who's deeply Christian produces amazing academic work that's not you know, it's not evangelical work. He's not trying to convert anybody, but he's from this place that he's carved out for himself in 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 his own interior self that he's able to uh, explore and and analyze and think his way to new places. And, and and it seems to me like the idea of what a university is for, you know, at least romantically or classically, what the university is supposed to do is to produce strong individuals who can think for themselves. And yet what, what, what comes across from uh, Ruddick's work is that what the humanities departments are producing today are uh, compliant functionaries of an institutional system. Yeah. Is this a fair description of the humanities scene today? It can be. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always wary of making over-totalizing right. um, uh, kind of statements about academia because so much depends even in the individual culture you know, of, of a department. Like one department might be radically different from another in, in those terms. And a lot of it has to do with the personalities of the professors who lead a department. One person can make a huge difference to the culture of a department. So, you know, there's a huge amount of variety. That being said, yeah, I can give you a little story about this. I, used, I had a friend a long time ago who was in, in English he had gone to a very highfalutin literature department. I'm going to keep all the names out of this. So think of an Ivy League university or something very like an Ivy League university, like the kind of place where they will have literally hundreds of applicants for two or three slots for graduate schools, like highly competitive. It's not easy to get into these programs, right? And so you, just like undergraduates trying to get into college, you have to write an essay saying why you want to go to graduate school, like an application essay. And I can tell you from personal experience of sitting on the admissions committee for my own department, a lot of these most, in fact, probably most of these essays are variations on I want to study music history because I just really, really love music. And yeah. I got no problem with that. The only problem is that everybody says that. Uh, yeah. So they all kind of look the same. And they tend anybody who's sort of running some version of that had better find a memorable way of putting it or risk being kind of forgotten somewhere in the middle of the pile. And this friend of mine who had gone to this very prestigious program and got his doctorate there told me that he started his personal Why I Want to Go to Graduate School essay with the words, I hate literature. And it was a little bit of a camp, a little bit of a put-on because, you know, I know my friend and he was an avid reader who loved literature, right? Mm -hmm. But he knew perfectly, he was a smart dude and he knew perfectly well, everybody says, 
uh, everybody turns these application essays into an encomium to their love of reading. And he didn't want to do that. And so he almost sort of challenged himself to write an essay from a totally contrarian perspective. That was his lead. And it was really effective. I think somebody told him later, like, oh, yeah, that essay really caught my eye. And so like being like a position of affirmation always comes off as being gooby and naive and just kind of generic and hackneyed. Whereas a position, a, a negative position, especially one where there's a sense that you're making people uncomfortable a little bit, that you're destroying what other people love, but in a way that seems dashing rather than dickish. Like, that is always a pretty calculated power move in a academia, and it works most of the time. And yeah. that ultimately doesn't have to do with high theory or anything like that. It's just, it's a much more general kind of dynamic. In a sense, like, I don't fault your friend for doing that. It makes perfect sense. If you're, if you're competing against a large number of people to, to get that one spot, you're going to do what you need to do to get in. But, but there's a lot of this stuff going on, it seems to me... Um, you know, even once you've been accepted, like people will write, you know, it seems to me like you don't really need to believe what you write. You, you, you basically write what will get published. I, I really, really doubt that. Well, that's a very great danger. Yeah. Well, I, I doubt that, that anyone actually believes that there's no such thing as interiority since that it's the only thing they've ever experienced in their entire fucking lives. You don't, you don't experience yourself as a set of historical forces if you did, there would be no argument. In fact, the humanities would never have developed to begin with. What, you, what people experience in everyday life is themselves as a self <laughs> who's like making decisions yeah. and trying and then arguing that there is no, you know, like it, it, it just seems to me like there's a, a kind of uh, the, the ironizing that you mentioned earlier has, has gotten so extreme that for the most part, I think most of, the, the de facto dogma is kind of just a bunch of bullshit um, that yeah. it's really hard to take seriously if you're not already you a, invested in that world. I can give you a person, a story from my personal experience. So one class that I teach every few years at Indiana is current readings in cultural studies. And it's usually just pieces, either articles or books that are written in the idiom of cultural theory on the subject of music. And I don't know, I do it in order to give our students an idea of like what's going on out there in the field. What, what are some ways that people are writing scholarship in this idiom? Uh, especially because actually that idiom is not particularly pervasive in my own department. And uh, one year we were reading something that was, again, assuming in this kind of like fairly second or third hand way, assuming the idea of the decentered self, the idea of the self, just as we've been describing it, as a miscellaneous heap of bits and pieces that we stitch into a more or less fictive unity and call our own personal identity, right? And so we're talking about this, and my students are pretty smart. This is a few years ago. And the students are smart, and they're conversant with that idiom. They know that that's just a pretty widely assumed idea. So we're talking about this and we're talking kind of within that idiom for a while, like assuming the basic fictiveness of the integral self. And at one point I stopped and said, well, okay, I would like you to tell me how that idea, that idea of the decentered self, why that idea is plausible to you. 
and but in a way that does not refer to published works of cultural theory. Not what have you read that makes it plausible? What in your experience makes it plausible? And nobody had an answer to it. Yeah. And in fact, I've, I've asked the questions in several different classes where it's come up, and no one ever has an answer to it. It's not part of people's experience. It's actually more likely, and irony, uh, it's actually more likely to be part of your experience if you have a serious religious background. Yeah. If or you, if, if you have a serious religious practice, because, you know, for a long time, I was a pretty serious about my investment in Zen Buddhism. I guess I still am a strange sort of Buddhist. I'm a lapsed Buddhist. But at the time, I mean, there was a certain point where I was really, really into Zen. And I realize in retrospect, to some extent, because I was understanding Zen Buddhism in a somewhat self-serving way, you know, Zen and Buddhism more generally actually says about the self ideas that are remarkably consistent with the set of cultural theoretical notions that we've been playing with. You know, the idea that the self is just uh, heaps of stuff. Actually, the Sanskrit word for it is skandhas. Skanda, yeah. And so, yeah, in Buddhist phenomenology, there's the five skandhas, uh, five heaps. And it's perception, sensation, cognition... I forget them all. There's five of them. Anyway, that idea to me was very, very plausible because, I mean, I had sort of been dealing with the secular version of it for a long time. And when you meditate, when, and I got very into meditation, you know, when you meditate, you actually experience that. You let go of your attachment to the various stories that you tell yourself or various things that you think of as parts of yourself you let them sort of drift away and what's left is this very paradoxical sense of yourself as this well as this kind of um a formation something that's been put together and so it's actually possible in in religious life and i think that uh i think christian mystics also have strayed into that terrain often enough as well but they have tools for understanding it in ways that aren't self-annihilating. You can uh, you can understand the self as a as as skandhas as a heaps of stuff, but then at the same time you are also developing a powerful affirmative idea of who I really am. There really is like an idea of like who I really am. It's a strange and counterintuitive one, but it there is a very powerfully affirmative side of it. So it is actually possible to have like personal experience that somewhat buttresses this idea of the descendered self. But for the most part, people aren't speaking out of experience. It's almost entirely this kind of recitation of scripture, of received wisdom. I've had my own experiences of this of the descendered self um, in my um, let's call them psychedelic experimentations, you know. And uh, yeah. and uh, some of them were quite quite intense, but the upshot or the the, the result of these were never uh, a loss of soul, a kind of loss of self. After the fact, there's always a kind of the, the inner life becomes richer as a result and more right. more cohesive. And uh, like you said, there's a kind of a, a path that emerges from this, or a way forward, or a a set of you know, like beacons that you can follow from these experiences, or at least that's, that, that was my experience when it happened to me. The, yeah. 
the result for me was always kind of a strengthening of the interior of interiority or a deepening of it and not uh, its dissolution into, especially not into a set of uh, uh, market forces or something like that. Um, yeah. And it seems to me like the religious theories about the decentered self, they take aim at a different level of the real from that of Marxist critique. You know, it's interesting in um, Buddhism, in the Buddhist world, I remember hearing from somebody, I can never remember where I heard any of these things. Maybe I'm making it up. Maybe I'm a, a great wise adept and I'm actually passing off all of my profound wisdom as uh, <laughs> stuff other people have said. Um, but somebody was saying somewhere that there are a number of kind of near, um, they're almost like doppelgangers in the old fashioned kind of fairy tale sense, like a doppelganger looks just like me, but it's evil. There's like evil, a lot of evil twins in Buddhism. For example, true compassion, the, the compassion of the Buddha and what they call idiot compassion or the kind of like non-attachment. It's a fundamental idea in Buddhism versus apathy. You know, those two things, they look kind of similar, but they're totally different. Right. Uh, and I think that the decentered self thing there's a good version of it, which is a version that we're trying to talk about, something that where, you know, in a deeper questioning of the self, you come to some perhaps surprising and paradoxical answers. Oh, there's nothing there. And that nothing is beautiful and radiant and open and whole. I mean, it's paradoxical, right? But there's something positive there. And then there's its evil twin, which is a kind of just nihilism. The best example of it, the best articulation of it I can think of is uh, Patrick Bateman's monologue in American Psycho. I confess I've never read the novel, but I saw the film. Uh, it's a good movie, um, yeah. of American Psycho. And at one point, Patrick Bateman says in a voiceover, there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I am simply not there. Yeah. And Patrick Bateman, this psycho, he's a satirical image of a consumerist, of the of, of somebody who is uh, who lives a life of total emptiness, whose self really is just stitched together from bits and pieces of a consumer society. That's the image of non-interiority as serial killer, right? Yeah. And then there's the also the non-interiority or the 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 decentered subjectivity or whatever we want to call it of the saint. And those two things so similar in some ways, like what Patrick Bateman is saying isn't really that different from the idea of like, you know, the skandhas of the self as just a heap of things. But that little difference makes all the difference. Yeah. What is that difference? I don't know. I don't quite know. It seems that that in one experience of decenteredness, let's call it subjective disintegration, you'll come out with uh, a feeling that I am even less than this. But then there's an experience that tells you the self is even more than the skandhas. Like, you could interpret it to mean that the skandhas are aggregates that come together to create an illusory self and that you dissolve them in order to discover a true self, like whether you call it mm -hmm. Buddha, Buddha nature or whatever. 
And um, it's not so much that there's nothing behind the mask, that there's nothing behind the eyes of the person you love. When you look at them, there's nothing actually going on there. There is more than you can see going on there. There's always this more, this, this singularity that transcends yes. every level of analysis so that instead of concluding at the end of it that a person is actually a nothing or just a tool, an instrument of social and market forces, you could conclude instead that a, an individual is infinitely more than his or her historical constitution as an individual in the world that there's more to yeah. a person than that. And that seems to me uh, the path that leads to a, a feeling of value in uh, individual existence and a feeling of a desire to search for the true self, quote unquote. And I, I, I'm putting it in scare quotes just because it sounds trite, but I mean it in a very real way, that, that, that maybe the whole point of the humanities should be to train people to embark upon a quest for their true self and uh, maybe that would give humanities the uh, the moral edge it has evidently completely lost in the last fifty years or so. Yeah, that's a nice that's a nice idea. I think actually at its best, the academic humanities can do that. It can be in the business not just of knowledge or information, but wisdom. I mean, what you're talking about is education as a means of coming to wisdom. Right almost the same way that prayer or meditation or various spiritual exercises can be paths to wisdom. You know, the, the seminar room can be, our, in secular society, can be a path to wisdom. Because actually the problem is not holding a critical account of interior subjectivity. The problem is nihilism, you know, assuming that the nothing that lies behind you know, the conventional identity that I carry with me in everyday life. To think of that nothing just as nothing, <laughs> uh, do we really know what nothing is? about David Lynch's triumphant third season of Twin Peaks. In fact, I just talked about it in a, we have a colloquium series, and I just read a paper, the paper that I did at University of Chicago at the end of last semester, which is about Twin Peaks. And in it, I'm kind of trying to do for Twin Peaks what Graham Harmon uh, and Eugene Thacker and uh, philosophers like that are doing, or Nick Land, what they're doing with the Cthulhu mythos. You know, they're they're taking a fic they're using a body of fictional texts as a fictional map through the real world, right? Mm -hmm. You're taking stories, things that aren't, you know, they didn't literally happen, but you're using those stories as a way of understanding fundamental things about the universe. And I argue that we can kind of do something very similar with Twin Peaks, that the, it's possible to use the Twin Peaks mythos in much the same way that Harmon and Thacker and them are using the Cthulhu mythos. And one way that I can do it, as a kind of closing thought here, is that moment in, I guess it's the first episode of the new season, where Cooper is still in the Red Room, he's still in the Black Lodge, 
and he sees Laura Palmer and he says, aren't you dead, basically? And she says, I am dead, yet I live. And she removes her face and behind her face is just brilliant white light. And it's a beautifully mysterious moment that's never explained in the typical David Lynch sense, but that's almost like a beautiful visual image, a metaphor for what we're talking about. You know, how do you square the sense of a self against the equally strong sense that ourselves are, you know, conglomerations of things? It's something like Laura Palmer's I am dead, yet I live. And yeah, we say, what what happens when you take your face off? What lies behind your face? Not nothing, not a black hole. That actually is something that we see later, right? And then a different character does the same thing, removes her face, and what we see behind mm -hmm. it is a void. Yeah. But Laura Palmer's void is the void of a kind of brilliant white light. It is not a nothing. Or if it's a nothing, it's a glorious, beautiful, and full nothing. It's a nothing that that contains everything. And that sense of self, that's very different. It's so close, so similar to this kind of nihilistic vision of the dissenter self, but, it's, but it couldn't be more different. And perhaps something that is left for the humanities to do uh, is to meditate on the difference between these two things and to try and give students a sense of the higher nothing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> a nothing that delivers. Yeah, it's like the, the, the infinitely more nothing, that there is yeah, always more exactly. than what you can apprehend and that your, your rational analytical powers will never plumb the depths of the real that there's always more and it's in that sense that 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 the word nothing is is useful as as a metaphor because it's not any one thing it's not any totalizing something but it's like an a white light like as you as you said that contains everything that that's yeah and I, that was a beautiful way of, of finishing it but i just i can't help but just um just to bring it back to the the article we read uh that one of the consequences that that uh, Ruddick um, detects here of this type of thinking, this idiom, uh, is that it, um, it creates, as we said, compliant professionals who serve their institutions, essentially, um, yep. and who, who are suspicious of anything that comes from within themselves. So that yep. so it, it, it's, it seems to me that, that uh, a retrieval of this idea of the self we might not call it the self, we might call it soul, we might call it something else, but this idea that of the, the essence of the individual, uh, that's uh, an essence that goes beyond history, that is um, a truly eternal essence, that, that it seems to me that some kind of idea of that type is pretty much the only bulwark any one of us has against the engulfing collective that Reddick talks about. That at some point in your life, absolutely agree. The, the process of individuation is the process by which your own singularity withstands and transcends the uh, the circumstances of your existence and also the forces that try to actually oppress you. That uh, it's not maybe it's not so much interiority that's the oppressive force, but um, the absence of any sort of interiority and the dissolution yeah. of identity into a 
the vague nothingness of the, the grand bureaucracy that we seem to be intent on turning the world into. Awesome. All right. I think we did it. Yeah, I think so. We figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, hypothetical audience, for listening to us talking about nothing. this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>